Scripture reading this morning, the text for our sermon comes from Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Paul has just uh, finished uh, organizing some affairs with Timothy and Epaphroditus, and now he, in many ways, begins the conclusion to his epistle to the Philippians. And we see the first part of that in Philippians 1. I mean, Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Let's turn our mind and our hearts to the reading of God's word. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which, which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In Philippians 3, verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And in Philippians 4, verse 4, Paul says that same thing. He says, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, he'll say, Rejoice. And in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, Paul says, Rejoice always. Paul consistently calls believers to rejoice. But are you ever tempted to throw up your hands and say, what gives? I can't rejoice right now. Paul's calls to rejoice are, are unreasonable. I couldn't even think about rejoicing. I'm not even happy. In fact, I'm depressed. Paul is asking something Possible of me. What Paul says here in Philippians 3, verse 1, is difficult to hear in a culture that is pervaded by a sense of hopelessness. In a culture where suicide rates are skyrocketing. In a culture where most people are discontent and can't find satisfaction in anything. The world be a downright depressing place. You're constantly confronted with bad news on the television or on social media. And so the words of Paul here might make you angry. Rejoice? 
How can I rejoice? Perhaps you've, you've heard Christian after Christian say, just be happy. Just go about your life rejoicing. Perhaps you're tired of a Christian culture that says there's no place in the church for a sad Christian. But Paul is not telling us here in Philippians 3 verse 1 to just grin and bear it. He's not calling us to some sort of fake happiness that has no substance to it. Nor is Paul calling you to a type of positivism that you might hear from a a Joel Osteen sermon. Paul isn't saying you've got to just remove all the negativity out of your life. He's not just saying you've got to live your best life now. Remember, Paul is writing this while he's in prison in Rome, likely awaiting the death sentence. These calls to rejoice, then, are not just calls to have a stiff upper lip. Rather, we are to recognize what we have in Christ We are to find in Christ our satisfaction, our source of contentment, and rejoice because of that. In other words, a happy Christian is one whose confidence is in Christ. So let's consider the the characteristics of a happy Christian from Philippians 3. Who knows that a happy Christian is one who knows, is one who watches, as one who counts. First, the happy Christian knows that their identity is in Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 3, For we are the circumcision. We worship God in the Spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus, and we have no confidence in the flesh. Here Paul sets Christians up in contrast with Judaizers. Judaizers were those who followed Paul on his missionary journeys. Paul would preach in a city. He would uh, do his work there. And then when Paul had left, these Judaizers would come in and stir up trouble. They would say that a true Christian is one who also had to, to follow various Old Testament rituals. A true Christian had to be circumcised. A true Christian had to uh, keep the feasts and the various Jewish Sabbaths. A true Christian was one who had to keep the dietary laws. These Judaizers said, yes, Christ is the Messiah, but Christ's work isn't quite enough. There were other commandments that had to be obeyed if you were going to be saved, if you were going to to truly live a faith-filled life. And for the Philippians, it would have been very tempting to listen to these Judaizers. The Philippian church would have been made up of at least several Jewish proselytes, that is, those who had been converted to Judaism. And when Paul came and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, they would have been converted over to Christianity, but they would have 
still had something of a Jewish heritage. We can just think of Lydia, who was that seller of purple, who worshipped God. She was there in the, in the Philippian church. These would have been very familiar. These people would have been very familiar with practicing these Jewish rituals. It would have been very tempting for them to, to return to those rituals which they had grown up with, which they had been practicing for many years. But Paul reaffirms that these, this Philippian church, that these Christians gathered here, they are of the true circumcision. These Judaizers, for all their talk about circumcision, were not the circumcision. They did not understand the place of circumcision in the covenant of grace. They didn't understand that circumcision was, was to be a sign of being in the covenant. It was not a work that you had to do to be saved. After all, Abraham was justified, not after he had been circumcised, but before. For all the Judaizers' emphasis on circumcision, they were wrong. But those who are of faith, those who are true believers in Christ, are the circumcision because their hearts have been circumcised. They recognize that the true circumcision is not an outward reality, but an inward reality. We saw that in our reading from Jeremiah. Passage end with, Jeremiah saying that they're not circumcised in their hearts. True circumcision is not that outward circumcision. It is that inward circumcision of the heart. And thus, Paul says in Romans 2, verses 28 through 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. That is your identity if you are in Christ. You are of the true circumcision. Your hearts have been circumcised. You have been given that new heart, that heart of flesh. And that stony heart has been taken away. And such you worship God in the Spirit. In other words, you are not concerned about questions of whether this person or that person has been circumcised. You worship God wholly from the heart, without need of assistance from carnal elements. Your worship is spirit-led because you have a Holy Spirit dwelling within you. This is one of the reasons we don't use instruments in worship. We in the New Testament no longer have need of instruments. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts, encouraging us, leading us in worship, leading us to praise, leading us to joy. So how does your identity help you to be a happy Christian? How does knowing that you are of the true circumcision help you to be a happy Christian. Well, Paul says right in the text that, that we who are of the circumcision, we who worship God in spirit, well, we rejoice in Christ. 
That, that's who we are. We rejoice in Christ. That's part of our identity. It is those who rejoice in Christ. The very fact that we are of the circumcision means that we are those who rejoice. The very fact we are saved means that there should be some element of joy in our hearts. This does not mean that a Christian only rejoices. Paul himself confesses to weeping in Philippians 3. We see that in Philippians 3 verse 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of Christ. One who is of the true circumcision isn't always happy. There are certain things he mourns about, he weeps about. Weeps about the state of the souls of others. But knowing our identity, recognizing that we are in Christ, is a joyful thing. Because it means you know who you are. You know where you are going. You are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Because your identity is in Christ, you have no confidence in the flesh. One of the greatest hindrances to rejoicing as a Christian is to place confidence in the flesh. And that brings us to the next characteristic of a Christian. A happy Christian watches out for those who are a hindrance to his joy. Thus Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 2, Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Paul earnestly warns the Philippians to beware of those Judaizers who we described earlier. These dogs Paul talks about aren't, aren't those furry animals with four legs who you might have as a pet. These weren't, these weren't kind, gentle dogs. They were wild, ferocious animals that would roam the streets looking for garbage and attacking those passing by. Paul uses this term dog to describe these Judaizers because they were as dangerous as these dogs. They were dangerous to the church's joy. What does that have to do with us? We're not faced with the re reality of, of Judaizers coming into our worship services, disrupting our services, trying to tell us that we need to be circumcised or that we need to start obeying the Old Testament rituals. Sure, there are people out there who believe that today. You might even have interaction with, with those who say you have to keep the Old Testament feast. But even if we did have people like that coming into our fellowship, we would likely recognize them for what they are. After all, it's not that big of a temptation for us to, to go back to the Old Testament rituals. We never grew up with them in the first place. So I ask him, what does this have to do with us? How are we to be beware of 
these Judaizers. There are many ways we as Christians today can still have confidence in the flesh. These Judaizers were were characterized by their confidence in the flesh. And Paul gives this warning. And he gives this warning against any type of mentality that puts privilege, that puts actions before the work of Christ. See, it's not necessarily those who are outside of us who are tempting us to put confidence in the flesh. We put confidence in the flesh ourselves. As we think about our salvation, we can be tempted to take a certain type of carnal security from the fact that we are, after all, Reformed Presbyterians. We worship God rightly. We sing the Psalms. We don't use instruments. We know our theology. We know what we believe and why we believe it. We can wrongly take pride in the fact that we are Reformed Presbyterian as though this somehow gives us standing with God. We can easily put confidence in our knowledge and not in Christ. We can rejoice not in Christ, but in our ability to throw scriptures around, to quote the reformers and to win arguments on Facebook. We can have confidence not in the righteousness of Christ, but in our superior understanding of scripture. Paul warns against this mentality because this is someone he himself used to be. Paul used to have abundant confidence in the flesh. He had done everything right. He had every single privilege he possibly could have. He was circumcised the eighth day in exact obedience to the law of God. He was of the stock of Israel. He was of the people of Israel. He was a descendant of Jacob and not just any ordinary descendant. He was of the house of Benjamin. A tribe known for its bravery in battle. A tribe known for its zeal in battles against the Lord's enemies. Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. If there was a man who could be called a Hebrew, it was Paul. And that wasn't all. Paul was of the strictest branch of Judaism. He was a he Pharisee and, and paid very close attention to the law and how it was to be obeyed. And he had zeal. He had so much zeal. that He persecuted the church of Christ. Not every Pharisee did that. Gamaliel in Acts said, no, we should, we should just leave the church alone. If it's something of God, then it will prosper. But if it's not, it will, it will fall apart. Gamaliel, a Pharisee, did not go to the extent of persecuting the church. But Paul went to that extent. He was zealous. The Pharisees could not point their finger in any way at Paul and say, Paul, you have failed in some way. According to the law, Paul says, 
he was righteous. According to the laws of the Pharisee, Paul was righteous. Yet, all this counted for nothing. Every single privilege that Paul had counted for nothing. We see later that Paul counted all these things as loss. Similarly, our confidence must not be in our Christian heritage. It must not be in our confessionalism. It must not be in that we were born to godly parents, that we are blue blood our peers. It must not be in the bare fact that we have been baptized or the fact that you attend church each week. None of these things will save you on the day of judgment. Paul warns us against entertaining any self-righteous spirit because self-righteousness is the poison that destroys the happy Christian. Confidence in the flesh kills the joy of salvation that we have in Christ. Let me just work through an example of what I'm saying. What do you do when you sin? When you sin, do you try to distract yourself from the guilt by eating food, by listening to music, by watching videos, by by scrolling through your Facebook? Do you try to deal with, with a problem, guilt, problem, your sin, by covering it up in a carnal manner? You just want to get your thoughts off of your sin. Get your thoughts off of what you just did. Rather than flying to Christ right away, you, you fly to another idol to try to deal with the guilt. This is as foolish as a parched man. A man dying of thirst, refusing a glass of water, and instead drinking down a glass of sand. The sand distracts him as he tries to spit it out of his mouth. The sand distracts him from from his thirst. But it doesn't deal with the actual problem. The moment you sin, don't put your confidence in flesh. Put your confidence in Christ. Fly to Christ who is a spring of water. Do not run to the broken cisterns of confidence in the flesh. Run to Christ. Because in Christ, you have a true source of joy. So a happy Christian is one who watches out for anything that may hinder his rejoicing in the Lord. But also, the happy Christian counts all things loss in order that he may gain Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3 verses 7 through 11, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul counted absolutely everything that he had as a loss so that he could gain Christ. All those privileges which he had, being, of a, he- being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, that meant nothing to Paul. Any intellect he had, that meant nothing. His ability to preach and write epistles, that meant nothing. And his standing with God, not even being an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was all loss. He counted it as loss in order that he may gain Christ. Christ was everything to Paul. Paul said earlier in this epistle that to live was Christ and to die was gain. Paul's life was Christ. We often view our life as being absolutely everything we have. But Paul so focused on Christ that he even counted death as gain because in dying, Paul would be able to gain more of Christ. Paul counted all things as loss. And this word used for loss is a very specific one that only appears in a few places in the New Testament. Specifically appears in Acts 27. There that word is used to speak how the cargo on board the ship that was to capsize with Paul in it as he was on his way to Rome would be lost. The sailors on that ship externally had everything to gain by the cargo that was on board that vessel. Their cargo was their livelihood. It was how they would pay for their wages. It was how they would provide for their families. In external sense, it meant everything to them. Just as Paul's Hebrew heritage, in external sense, meant everything to him. But if these sailors were, were to view that cargo as their greatest gain, it would destroy them. It would sink their ship, and they would all drown. This cargo had had to be nothing to them so that they could live. It would have to become loss to them so that they could survive. And thus Paul uses this word to show that supposed external privileges must become loss in the economy of God so that the great gain of salvation in Christ can be received. There truly is great gain in being found having Christ's righteousness. Christ is a merciful and compassionate Savior. He provides full and free salvation. We have wonderful freedom in Christ. The Judaizers sought to, to bind the conscience. They sought to go back to the flesh. They sought to destroy the freedom that Christ gave. Their yokes were heavy and burdensome. But not Christ. You ought to rejoice in Christ because, as Matthew 11 verses 28 says, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Christ is a gentle and a lowly Savior. 
And there are many who, who are not gentle and lowly in this life. There are many who seek to destroy the joy of Christ's sheep by elevating the flesh, by counting things gain when they should be counted as a loss. There's no mistake that right after Matthew recounts how Christ said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The next story Matthew gives about Christ's life is the Pharisees taking issue with Christ's disciples plucking grains, plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. The Pharisees had lists of do's and don'ts. They took God's law and added all the ways that they thought the law should be obeyed. So when God told us to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, the Pharisees said, well, the way you do this is is by not plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. The way you do this is only walking three quarters of a mile, a Sabbath day's journey. The way you do this is by not carrying your bed or any burden on the Sabbath. The way you do this is not by, is, is not healing anybody on the Sabbath. The Pharisees added to God's law where, there, where they thought there was lack of practical application. And in doing so, with all their additions to God's law, Pharisees counted obedience to their man-laid laws as the greatest gain. That was the true worshiper of God, the one who could keep all laws that they had made. Pharisees did not count Christ himself, who, who was there in the flesh right before their eyes as the greatest gain. No, they, they pointed the finger at Christ and said, you're not keeping the laws. What's wrong with you? And so Christ would rebuke the Pharisees in Matthew 23 because they were hypocrites. They did not understand the law. They saw it as a bunch of do's and don'ts. But they forgot the law also spoke of faith, of mercy, and of justice. Pharisees were blind to those matters of the law. And sadly, we can do a similar thing when we create what we, we believe to be a Christian culture, but, uh, but a culture that really has no basis in Scripture. We encounter our, our man-made laws as the greatest gain for a Christian. This happens when we start to, to think a Christian as a person who who follows my way of doing things. Rather than looking at what Scripture says, we start binding the consciences of others. Typically outside of, of, of RP circles, some might argue that a Christian is somebody who follows a, a religious calendar. They go to church on Easter, on Christmas, on Good Friday. And, and if you don't do that, well, there's something wrong with you. You're, you're not a true Christian. You're, you're, you're something less, you're less of a Christian if you don't celebrate those religious holidays. Getting closer to home, some might believe that a Christian is someone who homeschools their kids. And if you don't, well, are you really biblically parenting your child? Others might think a Christian 
is one who wears a suit and tie when he comes to church. That is something that must be done. If you are truly reverencing God, you must wear a suit and a tie. If such thinking is, is, is counting man-made laws as the greatest gain. It's not looking at what Christ says. It's not looking at Christ. Christ alone is Lord of the conscience. Man cannot bind our consciences with his own laws. Only Christ can bind the heart with his commandments. And Christ, by his death, has also granted us Christian liberty. There's a joy in the freedom that Christ gives us. Part of of counting everything else as loss means you have the joy of Christian liberty. Christian liberty means that you've been given freedom from the guilt of your sins. Many years I struggled with this concept. I thought, surely God cannot have, have possibly freed me from the guilt of my sins. I need to feel guilty for my sins. I need to punish myself for my sins. My sin is so hideous. I need to suffer the shame and guilt of it. But what a joy. What a freedom it was to hear that that Christ has removed the guilt of my sins. He hasn't just legally covered over my sin. He has also removed the guilt and the shame of it. What happiness I had when I counted all things lost so that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, having his righteousness. Christian liberty also means that you are no longer under the wrath of God. Christ endured the wrath of God. Christ was forsaken. Christ was crushed for your sake so that you might never know the condemning wrath of God. Sometimes we can forget this. Sometimes we can live our life thinking that God is angry at me. That he is immensely displeased with me. When trials come, when when you fall sick, when you lose your job, when your marriage breaks down, you might think that God is finally beating you the way he has always wanted to. You can get in the mode of thinking that Yes, God has saved me. But that doesn't mean he's not angry with me. We can think that God, in a sense, has, has reluctantly saved us. That yes, he's, he's removed the, the judicial penalties for my sin. He has removed his, his legal wrath from me. He's still angry. He wasn't happy when he did that. I think he's more like a father who loves me because he is forced to love me. Not because he loves me himself. That is a lie of the devil. 
to count all things as loss, and to be found in Christ, not having your own righteousness, but having the righteousness which is from God by faith, means that you have been freed from the wrath of God. God is no longer angry with you. He is your loving, heavenly Father. Yes, He might chastise you, but that chastisement is not in anger. It is in love. Hebrews 13, verse 6 says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Your liberty in Christ means that you can rejoice because God truly loves you. And that sort of love is worth counting everything else as loss. And seeing Christ as the greatest gain. To truly rejoice, to be glad in this life, means you must have your eyes ever on Christ and His righteousness. It is to know that your identity is in Christ. Paul rejoiced, even though he was in prison as he wrote this epistle, because he found his satisfaction in Christ. His source of contentment was found in Christ. Paul did not look at himself, for happiness. He did not look to others for affirmation, for confirmation, as though that would make him glad. Nor did Paul look to the stuff of this life to provide peace and contentment. He looked to Jesus Christ. Some sort of escapism or stoicism? No. Paul is not dismissing the very real trials that accompany this life. Paul is not saying coldly, rationally, rise above whatever's troubling you. Instead, Paul is saying rejoice in Christ as you go through the events of this life, knowing that he is your strength in times of temptation, knowing that he is your refuge when the storms come, knowing that he is a God of armies and the enemies attack you. Know that he it is who gave himself up for you. He it is who died that you might call him Savior. Man-made laws bring you no joy. Confidence in the flesh will bring you no joy. Only Christ And his righteousness will bring joy. Christ is that perfect shepherd and bishop of your souls. Christ is that friend who will be with you when all others run away. And so rejoice in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in you this morning. We praise you. And we extol you for your great love towards us. Lord, forgive us for the times we have put confidence in our flesh. Forgive us for sinfully taking pride in any privileges, any blessings we might have. And help us, Lord, to ever joy in the fact that our identity is found in you. Help us, Lord, to watch out for those who might hinder our joy. 
Lord, help us to ever count all things as loss in order that we might gain Christ and be found in him not having our own righteousness, that righteousness which is from God through faith in our Savior. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. To respond by turning our psalm books to Psalm 32, the B selection. Psalm beautifully speaks of, of that blessedness which the forgiven sinner has. And we look specifically at verse uh, stanza 9. How many grieves the wicked earn as part of his reward. There's sorrow that sin reaps. But and stanza 10, be glad and shout, you righteous ones, and in the Lord rejoice, and let all those with upright hearts sing out with joyful voice. We who are of the circumcision, we rejoice. Our confidence is in Christ. Let's stand and sing Psalm 32, the B selection.